In our penultimate theme then, in the book of Proverbs, we want to think today of the love of Jesus. And love is valued in our society, isn't it? Everyone needs love and every one of us wants love. Our prizing of love is expressed in the cheesy quip. Every time I look at the keyboard, I see that you and I are always together. To the more ponderous statement, the best love is the kind that awakens the soul and makes us reach for more, that plants a fire in our hearts and brings peace to our minds. Today we're thinking of love and especially of the love of Jesus. It's a theme that dominates the whole of the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Wherever we look in the Old Testament, we see Jesus' love pictured for us in various human relationships. In the love of Isaac for his wife Rebecca, in that amazing and beautiful story. In the love of Jacob for Rachel, we see the love of Jesus prefigured. In the love of the the high priest, the, the top minister in the Old, or pastor in the Old Testament, as he prayed for the people, as he represented the people before God, we see prefigured the love of Jesus. We see Jesus' love in Moses pleading with God not to destroy the rebellious people of Israel. We have a wonderful picture of Jesus' love and Jonathan's love for David and David's love for Jonathan. And into the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, we see Jesus' love and God's love for his erring people, Israel. As they followed other gods, God's love still followed them. But it's in the the wisdom literature, the the books uh, of Psalms and Job and Proverbs, that we discover the richness and depths of Jesus' love. We're allowed to look into his heart and to discover the variety of his emotions. The book of Psalms gives us great insight into the love of Jesus. Psalm 22, for example, shows us the depths to which Jesus went in his suffering, the psychological, the emotional, the physical, the mental, the spiritual suffering to secure our forgiveness and our redemption. Psalm 23, the psalm about the shepherd, describes the great variety of Jesus' love for us and his presence with us and his provision and his correction and his care of his people. The Song of Solomon, depicting human love and romantic love, gives us insight into the love of Jesus for us. His care, his compassion, his mercy. But here in the book of Proverbs, and perhaps surprisingly for you, or maybe not surprising because the book of Proverbs speaks about every human relationship and and most human circumstances that we find ourselves in, we consider this theme of love. And as we think of the love described in Proverbs, we see it perfected in the love of Jesus for us. We try to have love in our marriages and in our families. 
and in our church and in our community. We work at it and we fail at it. But here we have depicted for us in Proverbs the love of Jesus. There's four ways in which Jesus, the Son of God, expresses that love and is expressing it at this very moment to his people. And we want to think of these uh, this morning. Firstly, in, in welcome, then in correction, friendship, and forgiveness. Firstly, welcome. This is chapter 15 and verse 17. Uh, read with me uh, these wonderful words. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now this verse is not a polemic against wealth, but it's a reminder that wealth is not an unmixed blessing. The contrast in our verse is between the daily peasant meal and the banquet of the king. The peasants in Old Testament times ate herbs, that's vegetables with a bit of bread on the side. The banquet of the king, as our verse says, has fattened ox. That's an ox fed in the royal stalls, tender, succulent, not toughened by hard work in the fields. But the contrast in the verse primarily is not the food on the table, the herbs versus the ox, the simple meal versus the complex, the cheap dinner versus the expensive. But it's the atmosphere at the meal that's contrasted. The important element at any dinner table, the verse is saying, is not the eateries, but the eaters. Not the plates, but the people. Not the cuisine, but the company. At a banquet by the king, there is often hatred, rivalry for the king's ear, many favours being sought from him, and some positions and favours given by him. There is vying for positions of power by rivals at the king's banquet. There are plots and schemes to oust competitors and to promote oneself. There is often hatred at the banquet of the king. One Old Testament example is in 1 Samuel 20, when Saul has a banquet and invites many guests, but his heart is full of hatred against his rival, David. Despite the sumptuous food, the fattened ox, which represents animals and cuisine at its very best, there is hatred and rivalry and disaffection. But over there in the gatekeeper's humble cottage, on the edge of the estate, in the shack, in the button bin, in the bothy, there in the cottage of the peasant, is a very simple meal being eaten of watery soup, cabbage, leek and green cheeses. But the meal is enriched beyond value with love, and care, and selflessness, and unity, and peace, and harmony among the family members and guests as they eat their simple meal. 
So which is better? The proverb is asking. Which is heavier? He wonders as he places both dinners in the set of scales. Which experience would you prefer? He is asking. The resounding answer is a simple meal with love. It is better. It is heavier. It is more enjoyable. The atmosphere of hatred that you can cut with a knife is trumped by the simple, basic peasant's meal by virtue of love. And so in the life of Jesus, at the feeding of the 5,000 with five barley loaves and small fishes, the basic ingredients of a peasant's lunch, the love of Jesus was there and transformed that meal. At the Last Supper, there was no fattened ox, no abundance of delicacies, but a simple meal. But alongside of that meal, there was the love of Jesus transforming that upper room. The love of Jesus doesn't need wealth, luxury, abundance to transform and to enrich. There was strife among the disciples. Who would be the greatest? But there was no strife between Jesus and his disciples. He loved them. He washed their feet. He taught them. And then he went out and he died for them. In this past week, I have learned the place to take my wife, and she's very glad to know about all this, to take my wife for lunch is the restaurant at Stormont. Situated above the main entrance and looking down the wide sweeping avenue, the restaurant is silver service, no less. But what an empty experience it would be if and when I take Ruth, if there were no love in my heart for her. So let's continue with our sumptuous meals for family and friends our Sunday roast, our birthday dinners, and our Christmas extravaganza, but ensure that we include the ingredient of love. Charles Bridges writes with his characteristic wisdom, love sweetens the meanest food. Hatred embitters the richest feast. Let us all include love in our meals. And let's remember that a simple meal with love beats a sumptuous meal with hatred. And perhaps this could encourage us in our ministry of hospitality. What often puts us off hospitality is the expense, the time, the effort involved in preparing a grand meal for guests. You don't have to make the legendary dish of Venezuela. Pabalon Crelo, with its black beans, white rice, juicy pulled beef, fried plantain. We should pin this proverb to our fridge. Vegetables and love beats a succulent roast dinner and hatred. 
Far better for our guests to leave muttering, beautiful people, how interested they were in us, than for them to leave saying, exquisite caviar. Let us all aim to eat our meals in the awareness of the love of Jesus. The greatest love that we need at our tables is Jesus' love. Even if we have family love at our table, we don't have enough. Even if we have a loving husband and wife, a loving father and mother, loving sisters, loving siblings, loving teenagers, we don't have enough. Even though our meal is marked by banter, sympathy, listening, sharing, we don't have enough. Let us desire the love of Jesus at our table today. Secondly, correction. Read with me chapter 13, verse 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. We've thought of reproof and correction in our studies, in a previous study. But briefly, we refer to it again in this verse, this time emphasizing the love in the correction. The proverb teaches that love is expressed in our correction, hatred in our not correcting. Obviously, the correction referred to here is just, it is measured, it is fair. And the one aspect of loving correction mentioned here is the promptness of the correction. Parents' memories are poor. We threaten discipline and sometimes forget to administer it or be chicken out of it, leaving our children with a sense of guilt or a feeling of false righteousness. After all, their behavior, the reason, must not have been too bad for no discipline to come. Or that they can forget why they're being punished by belated punishment. The time for correction, the verse says, loving correction is when the wrong is done. Then the situation is clear. The guilt is dealt with. The process of forgiveness can begin. Withholding needed punishment or chastening or correction is a sign of parental hatred, not of love. When bad behavior is rewarded by neglect of correction, the opportunity of teaching an important lesson is lost by the parents. The dignity of child and parent is tarnished. Jesus corrected quickly. When Peter was dissuading him from going to the cross, he immediately corrected him. When the Pharisees were behaving hypocritically, he promptly rebuked them. Why does he do it quickly? Because he's easily angered, he's short-tempered, he flies off the handle like our stress manager does. No, it's because he loves us. He who loves him is diligent to correct him. One parent tried to let his son know that he loved him even though he must discipline him. And he said to his son, Son, I want you to know that this discipline is hurting me more than you. 
And the son said, well, dad, please don't hurt yourself. <laughs> the love of Jesus has grit, strength, depth, backbone. And it takes a strong parental love to correct promptly, wisely, in a measured way. And sometimes we refrain from family or church correction because we're afraid of how we will be perceived or how the what the response will be. But that is a selfish attitude. Whoever spares correction hates his son. I've not read this in any parenting manual. But I don't recommend that a mother says to her child, just wait till your father gets home. I think the mother should deal with the matter immediately. Discipline the child and allow the repentance and forgiveness to be immediate rather than the child living in fear and uncertainty until his father returns. Part of loving correction is being prompt diligent to correct can we use this principle in our lives to learn what Jesus is teaching us I think we can we're so strong in our reformed tradition in maintaining that all sickness all disasters are not always the result of specific sins and there are biblical examples of that but there are far more biblical examples of sickness and disaster being the result of specific sins. The swiftness of the loving correction of Jesus will often allow us to link our suffering to a specific sin and to use our suffering to help our repentance. In my ministry, I have stood in the presence of people doing just that. Tears running down their face. And when I tried to point out that suffering and specific sin are not always linked, they silenced me. They were persuaded that it was in their case. And so because of this principle, we should ask ourselves in suffering, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Because he who loves is diligent to discipline. Thirdly, friendship. Chapter 17, verse 17. Read with me this verse. A wicked messenger falls into trouble. But a faithful envoy brings healing. <clears throat> Chapter 17, verse 70 reads, 17, verse 17 reads, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 17, 17. True love promotes harmony, corrects promptly, and loves unfailingly. It seems the same person is in view here in chapter 17, verse 17, described as a friend and a brother. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. 
That's not necessarily a blood brother, but brother in the wider sense of one who acts as a blood brother. We have the expression blood is thicker than water to describe the closer ties of family members even than friends. But here is a non-family member who loves as a brother. A friend loves at all times. And a brother, one who acts like a blood brother, is born for adversity. And one of the old times, chapter 17, verse 17, is identified in the verse. It's adversity. The friend, the brother, regards it as their duty, their reason for living, their purpose in this world. They are born for this, the verse says. This close friend, this faithful, loving friend of yours recognizes this God-given role in their life. They are born for this, to befriend you in adversity. Some friendships are made of brittle stuff. When circumstances change for the worse, friends change their attitudes sometimes. We lose our job. We crash our car. We fail our exam. We get kicked out of college. We make a mistake. Rumours are flying about our character or behaviour. And no one phones us. No one visits us. But true friendship persists through good times and bad times. A friend loves at all times. Jesus demonstrated this love to his disciples, didn't he? He loved them at all times. They misunderstood him at times. They forsook him. One denied him. They were afraid when they shouldn't have been afraid. They were bereaved. He was a friend, a true friend, perfect friend. He loved them at all times. Joseph and his brothers, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Onesiphorus and the Apostle Paul were true friends who loved at all times. And this is the stuff of church elders and church members we love at all times. On behalf of Session, I say to you, we will love you no matter what you do. We will never stop loving you no matter what you say to us, no matter how you respond or don't respond to our instructions, no matter what mess you get into in your relationships, in your finances, with the law, we will love you through thick and thin. You might question our leadership at times. You might question our wisdom, our decisions, but I trust that you will never question our love. A true friend, a faithful friend, loves at all times. And what is true of the elders should be true of us all. A brother, a sister in Christ, is born for, is born again for, into Christ's church, into Christ's kingdom. And this is one of their purposes, to love at all times. You don't have to ask me, how's Roy McFerrin doing? 
How's Sharon getting on? What's the latest with Gwen or Raymond? You don't have to ask me. Lift the phone and ask them yourself. This is your purpose, your reason, your calling in the church of Christ. A friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. And lastly, forgiveness. Chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. It covers all offenses. It's true of proper human love. It keeps quiet about transgression. I like the comment of Hubbard in this proverb. He writes, silence is never more golden than when we refuse to make personal capital by gossiping about the failings of a friend. Stirs up means to arouse what ought to be left in quiet. Cover suggests letting something lie out of sight where it is neither disturbed or disturbing. And in this proverb, the difference between love and hate is how a failure in someone else is handled. Hatred wants to draw it into the public eye, to debate it, to quarrel over it, to see that every angle of the scandal is publicized and exposed and every drop of shame is drawn from the face of the offender. Hatred stirs up strife. But love accepts the contrite repentance of the wrongdoer and seeks to contain the damage. One writer gives a helpful illustration of the difference between a stubborn dog and a, and a, a squirrel, a prudent squirrel, a stubborn dog and a prudent squirrel. He says, like a stubborn dog, hatred digs up every possible bone of contention, worries it with relish, parades it around in its snarling snout and drops it messily on the carpet where it causes nothing but consternation. Love, on the other hand, like a prudent squirrel, hides the morsel of scandal in a secret place where the light of exposure never reaches. So are we like a stubborn dog stirring up strife? Or are we like a prudent squirrel covering all offenses? Jesus has covered the sins of everyone who believes in him. How he did it in life, the woman who came to him in John chapter 8, People with weakness, illness, failure. He covers all offenses. All of us have sin in our lives. The seriousness of our sin is that it's against God. We need that sin forgivered and covered. We cannot pay the debt we owe God. We cannot earn our salvation by our good deeds, by confessing it to any human being. But as we acknowledge our sins to God and trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, all our offenses will be covered.
So then I say, let there be love in this congregation. Welcome, correction, friendship, forgiveness. Let there be love from Jesus to us, and then from us to one another.